0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Yale Vascular Review. We're your hosts, Ocean and Kairi. And we're here to bring you another exciting episode.
1: This is the last episode of season two. We wanna thank you all for sticking with us through 10 episodes. We've included a link for a quick two minute survey in the episode description for feedback and would love to hear from all of you. Our
0: topic for this episode is peripheral arterial disease and we've reviewed the papers published in Journal of Vascular Surgery. European Journal of Vascular Surgery and Annals of Vascular Surgery over the last few months to select the papers for discussion today. Great, let's get started. So Kiri, when we talk about PAD, peripheral arterial disease and all the endo options we have available these days for revascularization, the first thing that comes to mind is access, right? What is a safe way to get access to the vascular bed you're aiming for? And the access should also have adequate caliber to accommodate appropriate devices for the procedure. This first paper is from Boston University, published in JVS in July. This was titled, Percutaneous Radial Artery Access for Peripheral Vascular Interventions is a Safe Alternative for Upper Extremity Access. Authors include Dr. Levin and Dr. Syracuse. The VQI database was queried from 2016 to 2020 for peripheral vascular interventions that were performed via upper extremity axis. Brachial artery axis cases were used for comparison. A total of 520 radial artery axis cases were identified. Most of these procedures, about 72%, were performed in hospital outpatient setting. The sheet size was less than 5 French in 10% of cases, 6 French for 78% of cases, and 7 French for about 12% of these cases. Ultrasound-guided access was obtained in 68% of these cases, and protamine was used in about 17% of these cases. Most common procedures performed were aortoiliac and femoropoploteal interventions, with a few infrapopliteal interventions. Axis site complications were hematomas in 4.8%, pseudoaneurysms in 1%, and axis stenosis or occlusion in 0.8%. On multivariable analysis, sheet size was not associated with axis site complications. Percutaneous brachial artery access, compared with radial artery access, was independently associated with more overall hematomas. Peripheral vascular interventions via radial artery access exhibited a low prevalence of post-procedural access site complications and were associated with fewer minor hematoma complications compared with brachial artery access. They concluded that radial artery access compared with brachial artery access should be the preferred technique for peripheral vascular interventions.
1: Interesting. Sounds like radial access is safe and advantageous, but we are still limited by the sheet size we can use via radial artery. That brings us to this next paper, which discussed axillary artery access. This paper was published in JVS in July by the University of British Columbia. It was titled, Percutaneous Proximal Axillary Artery Versus Femoral Artery Access for Endovascular Interventions. Authors include Dr. Mordhorst and Dr. Kazemi. This is a single-center retrospective review of all peripheral, visceral, and aortic endovascular cases using percutaneous axillary artery access from 2019 to 2021, compared with a sample of an equivalent number of consecutive cases completed via percutaneous common femoral artery access during the same time period. A total of 115 accesses, 59 axillary and 56 femoral, were reviewed. Axis entry success was achieved in about 98% of axillary accesses and 100% of femoral, with no statistically significant difference. There were no significant differences in minor axis site complications versus major axis site complications or major adverse events between the axillary and femoral groups. With respect to versatility, axillary cases had a significantly greater mean number of vessels intervened on per procedure compared with femoral access, 2.6 versus 2.0. Axillary cases had significantly more bilateral lower leg interventions, 29% versus 13%. Axillary access also had a significantly longer mean procedure time, 103 minutes versus 59 minutes, and fluoroscopy time, 18 minutes versus 13 minutes. The axillary access is a feasible, versatile, and safe percutaneous access option for endovascular intervention. The inline trajectory from this site facilitates visceral, renal, aortic, and bilateral lower extremity interventions with ease. Outcomes, complications, and major adverse events are similar to those of conventional femoral access in the short term. Thanks, Kiguri. I like this.
0: This is a very timely paper as axillary artery access is being discussed more as a good access option. However, we we do see in this paper increased floral and procedure times. Some of this could be related to less familiarity with this access site and manipulation of devices through this site. But this paper shows that this warrants further investigation as percutaneous axillary access does allow for more visceral intervention options and could prove to be a very good access site for these interventions. And now that we mentioned fluoro time and procedure time, I want to bring to your attention this next paper. This was uh, titled New Imaging Technology System Reduces Patient Radiation Dose During Peripheral Arterial Endovascular Interventions. This was published in JVS in July. Authors include Dr. Pisano, Dr. Kirkwood from University of Texas Southwestern. They used clear wd 11 Pure Platform Technology System this platform system has been reported to lower the radiation dose and improve image quality. In the present study, the authors evaluated whether the radiation dose during peripheral arterial endovascular procedures had decreased after implementation of this new imaging system. So they had two groups, Group A and Group B. To control for variations in case complexity, both groups were matched by age, gender, BMI, lesion location, and intervention type. A total of 487 endovascular procedures were performed, 209 in Group A, and 278 in Group B. A total of 111 single intervention procedures from each group were matched. The median radiation dose was 28.8 gray centimeters square and fluoro time was 12 minutes for group A, while in group B the median radiation dose was 18.3 gray centimeter square and 10.4 minutes of fluoro time. The radiation dose and fluoro time were significantly decreased in group B by 24 and 22% respectively. Stratified by single intervention procedures, the radiation dose decreased significantly in group B by 36%, but the fluorotime decrease of 13% in group B was not statistically significant. So the use of this clear VD11 pure platform system reduced the patient radiation dose by 51% during endovascular interventions, the similar fluoro time for the matched single intervention procedures indicated consistent case complexity in surgeon practice. This platform appears to be an effective system for lowering the radiation dose.
1: That was great. It's definitely important to think about radiation safety in vascular surgery. Switching gears, the next paper I want to discuss is from Annals May issue, published by Dr. Lee and Dr. Roche Nagel from the University of Toronto. It was titled Rates of Intervention for Claudication Versus Chronic Limb Threatening Ischemia in Canada and the United States. The VQI was used to identify all patients who underwent endovascular intervention or surgical bypass for PAD between 2010 and 2019 in Canada and the United States. A total of 247,000 U.S. patients and 3,500 Canadian patients underwent revascularization for PAD during the study period. There was a higher proportion of endovascular interventions in the U.S., 76% versus 69%. American patients were younger with more comorbidities, including hypertension, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. The percentage of interventions performed for claudication was significantly higher in the U.S., 42% versus 36%. This persisted after controlling for demographic, clinical, and procedural characteristics. Perioperative outcomes were similar between countries after adjustment for baseline differences. However, 1-year amputation-free survival was higher in the United States, 84% versus 71%. Multivariable Cox proportional hazards analysis demonstrated that the factor most strongly associated with index limb amputation or death at 1 year was intervention for CLTI. There are significant variations in PAD management between US and Canada. In particular, a higher proportion of interventions are performed for claudication rather than CLTI in the U.S. compared to Canada. This is an important contributor to the higher one-year amputation-free survival rate in U.S. patients. Reasons for these differences should be assessed by future studies, and evidence-based care may be standardized by targeting quality improvement projects. Nice.
0: That was an interesting turn in our discussion, Kiri. Well, I have another one like that. This next paper is titled... Gender Differences in Outpatient Peripheral Arterial Disease Management in Germany, a Population-Based Study, 2009-2018. This was published in European Journal of Vascular Surgery, May issue, and the authors include Dr. Messia and Dr. Ramos. Gender-stratified PAD prevalence and differences in treatment by specialized outpatient care and pharmacotherapy were analyzed in 70 million insured patients per year in Germany between 2009 and 2018. In total, 18 million patients with PAD were identified, 47% of these were females. Prevalence of PAD in Germany increased between 2009 and 2018 and was higher in male population. Only a minority of 37% presented to a vascular specialist. Interestingly, female patients were both less likely to present to a vascular specialist and to receive guideline-recommended pharmacotherapy. Overall, Prescription rates of statins and antiplatelet drugs increased between 2009 and 2018. However, in CLTI, even fewer patients received a statin with a gender gap that was increasing. While overall outpatient treatment by vascular specialists and guideline-recommended medical therapy of PAD are low, women
1: and patients with CLTI remain undertreated. Wow, that was a large population study with interesting, but unfortunately unsurprising results, as women are often undertreated in multiple specialties in regards to pain, highlighting important biases that need to be actively addressed. Looking at endovascular PAD management, this next paper from the European Journal of Vascular Surgery, which was published in June, is titled Prediction of Technical Failure of Inframalleolar Angioplasty in Patients with Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia. Others include Dr. Sato and Dr. Urasawa from Japan. This single-center retrospective observational study enrolled 159 patients with CLTI who underwent inframalleolar angioplasty for de novo occluded lesions between 2017 and 2021. These patients were divided into two groups, the failed inframalleolar angioplasty group, which included 62 patients, and the successful inframalleolar angioplasty group, which included 97 patients. In multivariable analysis, no target vessel outflow, medial artery calcification, or MAC grade, and occluded pedal arch were identified as independent predictors of inframalleolar angioplasty technical failure. The risk prediction model had an area under the receiver operating characteristic curve of 0.93. The patients in the successful inframalleolar angioplasty group had a significantly higher proportion of wound healing at 12 months than those in the failed inframalleolar angioplasty group. Inframalleolar angioplasty technical failure was associated with a significant change in the proportion of wound healing. No target vessel outflow, MAC grade, and occluded pedal arch were independent predictors of inframalleolar angioplasty technical failure. In addition, successful inframalleolar angioplasty was associated with better wound healing outcomes at 12 months. They conclude that a model incorporating these three predictors precisely predicted inframalleolar angioplasty technical failure.
0: Now, switching over to some papers looking at open techniques for peripheral arterial disease, the first one I want to discuss here was published by Dr. Abdul-Malak and Dr. Islami from UPMC in JVS July issue. The title of this paper is Alternative Autologous and Biologic Conduits Have Worse Outcomes Than Prosthetic grafts for Infra-Inguinal Bypass in Patients with Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia. For this study, the WeQI lower extremity bypass database from 2003 to 2020 was queried to identify any lower extremity bypasses in patients with chronic limb threatening ischemia. They identified 23,000 lower extremity bypass procedures. 13,000 were done with great saphenous vein. Compared with the great saphenous vein group, the other conduit patients were significantly older, had more comorbidities, had an increased rate of prior lower extremity interventions, had a higher rate of infrageniculate bypass targets, and were less ambulatory at baseline. These other groups had significantly higher rates of postoperative morbidity compared to the great saphenous vein group. The prosthetic conduit group had a higher 30-day mortality compared with the great saphenous vein group, alternative autologous conduits, and non-autologous biologic conduit group. Both prosthetic conduit and non-autologous biologic conduit group had higher one-year mortality compared with great saphenous vein and alternative autologous conduit groups, 13% versus 10%. In an adjusted Cox regression model, prosthetic conduit was not significantly different from great saphenous vein, but alternative autologous conduits and the non-autologous biologic conduits were associated with an increased risk of loss of primary patency. A similar association with major adverse limb events was also observed. They concluded that in absence of great saphenous vein, Alternative conduits like autologous or non-autologous biologic conduits do not confer a benefit with regard to graft patency or major adverse limb events compared with prosthetic conduits. Increased operative time and costs associated with the use of these conduits compared to prosthetic conduits is not justified based on this study. And Kiuri, just so you know, by alternative autologous conduits, they mean small saphenous vein, multiple segment great saphenous vein, single segment or spliced cephalic or basilic veins. And by non-autologous biologic conduits,
1: they mean cryopreserved vein grafts or arterial homografts. Oh, okay, thank you for elaborating. Talking about conduits, this next paper was titled Non-Reversed and Reversed Great Saphenous Vein Graph Configurations Offer Comparable Early Outcomes in Patients Undergoing Inguinal Bypass. This was published in the European Journal of Vascular Surgery, June issue, by authors Dr. Chang and Dr. Gerg from NYU. The VQI database was queried for patients undergoing infrainguinal bypasses using non-reverse GSV and reverse GSV for symptomatic occlusive disease from 2003 to 2021. Of 7000 patients, 4600 underwent reversed GSV and 2500 underwent non-reverse GSV. At 1 year, the rates of primary patency 78% Secondary patency at 90% and reintervention at 16% were similar between the reverse GSV and non-reverse GSV cohorts. Subgroup analysis based on outflow bypass target and indication for revascularization did not show any differences in primary and secondary outcomes between the two groups. Multivariable analysis confirmed that reverse GSV configuration was not independently associated with increased risk of primary patency loss, secondary patency loss, and reintervention at follow up. The study shows that reverse GSV and non reverse GSV grafting techniques have comparable perioperative and one year primary and secondary patency and reintervention rates. Optimal selection of vein grafting technique should be guided by the patient's anatomy, vein conduit availability, and surgeon's experience. Thanks, Curie. The next paper
0: is titled Eversion and Artrectomy An Alternative Approach to Occlusive External Iliac Artery Disease. This was published in Annals of Vascular Surgery July issue by authors Dr. Foley and Dr. O'Donohue. They performed a single center retrospective review from 2000 to 2020 of all patients undergoing eversion endartrectomy for external iliac artery disease. 50 eversion endartrectomies were performed in 47 patients. The median age was 65 years, and 67% of patients were male. Indications for intervention were disabling claudication in 44%, and chronic limb-threatening ischemia in 56%. On angiography, it demonstrated 22 Task C lesions and 28 Task D lesions. The median follow up was 18.5 months. The technical success rate was 100%, and 84% experienced an immediate symptomatic improvement. Primary patency at 1, 3, and 5 years was 86%, 82%, and 74%, respectively. The 5 year limb salvage rate was 96%. 30-day mortality was 2%, with about 10% of patients experiencing a procedure-related morbidity. All-cause mortality was 38% during the follow-up period. They concluded that eversion endartrectomy is a safe and effective alternative treatment for occlusive external iliac artery disease, and the study reports durable patency at 5 years and low perioperative morbidity and mortality with this procedure. Kiyuri, for our listeners, do you want to briefly explain how eversion and artrectomy works?
1: Sure. The common femoral artery and external iliac artery are exposed through a vertical or oblique groin incision. After getting proximal and distal control, the common femoral artery is then transected at its bifurcation and everted superiorly to the external iliac artery. The end-arterectomized segment is then reanastomosed in an end-to-end fashion onto the common femoral artery bifurcation, or its branches, thus providing an autologous arterial reconstruction. The next paper was titled, Rates of Conversion from Dry to Wet Gangrene Following Lower Extremity Revascularization. This is from the Annals of Vascular Surgery, July edition. Um, authors include Dr. Latz and Dr. Dua from MGH. A multi-center retrospective review was performed utilizing the MGH Brigham Healthcare System's Research Patient Data Registry. All adult patients who had lower extremity dry gangrene that underwent a revascularization procedure, endo, open, or hybrid, from April to March 2020, were included. There were 1,500 patients identified who underwent revascularization. 13% of patients met inclusion criteria and served as the study cohort. There were 8% conversions from dry to wet gangrene within 30 days post-procedure. The mean time to conversion was 13.5 days. Univariate analysis did not identify any associated risk factors for conversion. The rate of dry to wet gangrene conversion post-revascularization is 7.7% within 30 days. The mean time of conversion is about 13.5 days. Interesting paper, Curie. It does suggest that these patients
0: should not be sent home with dry gangrene after revascularization. And there's probably benefit of proceeding with further intervention earlier rather than later, as it is only likely for this to progress and the wounds to get infected. Yeah, right. That makes total sense. So lastly, I want to talk about this paper that compared open and endovascular management of aortoiliac occlusive disease this was published in uh, Annals of Vascular Surgery, May issue, by uh, authors from Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Smith and Dr. Smolock. The paper is titled, Comparison of Aorto-Bifemoral Bypass to Aorto-Iliac Stenting with Bifurcation Reconstruction for Task 2 d Aorto-Iliac Occlusive Disease. Long segment stenting of the infrarenal aorta and bilateral iliac arteries with or without femoral endarterectomy for diffuse disease has been adopted for treatment of severe aortoiliac occlusive disease. The objective of this study was to compare outcomes of this reconstruction, termed aortoiliac stenting with bifurcation reconstruction, AISBR, in this study, to aortobifemoral bypass in patients with comparable TASC-2D lesions. This was a single center retrospective review of patients treated with aortobifem or AISPR for comparable TASC-2D lesions between 2010 and 2018. The aortobifem bypass patients were included in the study only if they were deemed anatomic candidates also for AISBR after review of preoperative imaging. There were 24 aortobifems in this study and 75 AISBR procedures. The primary indication for treatment was claudication in 55 patients, rest pain in 28 patients, and tissue loss in 16 patients. AISBR were performed percutaneously in 34 out of 75 patients. None of these required conversion to aortobifem bypasses. Intraoperative blood loss, procedure time, and hospital length of stay were significantly less for the AISVR procedure compared to aortobifem bypasses. Surgical site infections were less common in patients undergoing AISVR, 8% versus 38%. The reduction in blood loss, length of stay, and surgical site infections remained significant after excluding percutaneous AISBR from the analysis. Five-year primary patency was 51% for AISBR and 88% for aortobifem. Five-year survival was 77% for AISBR and 100% for aortobifem. AISBR, or aortoiliac stenting with bifurcation reconstruction is a viable option for management of Task 2D aortoiliac occlusive disease with lower morbidity and acceptable durability when compared to traditional aorto bypass. And that concludes our episode. Thank you so much for joining us this month. Don't forget to take two minutes to fill out our survey to help us improve. We will be selecting one random participant for a prize. And please feel free to leave feedback on our Twitter or Instagram posts. Be sure to subscribe to Yale Vascular Review on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you everyone for tuning in this month.